0: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and it's very nice to be here with you, and thank you for taking the time and the effort to come out and hear about forgiveness. I've given this talk twice before, and I find actually that the best way for this talk to reveal anything is through discussion and questions. So the talk itself is not going to be terribly long, partly because Mr. Jones wants to get out fast, but... But I think it's in the discussion that if we're going to reveal anything or find out anything, that's where it's going to happen. I am a teacher in a school up in Dublin, in John Scotus School, and I asked some children this morning, primary school children, what they thought forgiveness was. And one little chap said, well, if you're out in the yard and you get a bang on the knee and it starts bleeding and it's really sore, and then whoever knocked you down comes over and says, I'm sorry, well then... You just you just get on with it. You just say, it's okay. You just leave it. And you just go and tidy up your knee. You don't sort of think about it. He said, I think that's forgiveness. And another little girl said, well, it's not holding a grudge. Not having any grudges. You don't sort of hold it in for something. It's not having a grudge. And another little girl said, it's just letting go. You just say, it's okay. And I thought they certainly got one element of forgiveness clear. That forgiveness is going to require us surrender hurt. That's certainly one element of it. When I was doing this talk before I was looking for a good quote to start with and I found one and it's from WB Yeats and it's from a poem called A Dialogue of Self and Soul and it goes like this I am content to follow to its source every event in action or in thought measure the lot, forgive myself the lot When such as I cast out remorse, so great a sweetness flows into the breast that we must laugh and we must sing. We are blessed by everything. Everything we look upon is blessed. Now, this quote inspired me, and it inspired me because it links up forgiveness with happiness, with joy, with blessedness. But it also recognizes the need for remorse and repentance. So forgiveness has two aspects to it. There's the victim. To forgive we need to let go. We need to surrender. If we're to enjoy forgiveness or if we are to experience the blessings of forgiveness we have to acknowledge what's done wrong and we have to have a resolution it's not going to happen again. So they're the sort of elements at least to start off with. It also means I think, that if we're going to understand forgiveness, we can look at examples on the world stage. But more importantly, as Yeats said, we must follow every event in action or in thought to its source. Which means, I think, that we must put ourselves under the spotlight. We must look and see what goes on in the heart and what goes on in the mind. And when it's under observation, then it might be possible to find out what forgiveness really is, what gets in the way of it, how we can grow in it. And it's these questions, what is forgiveness? What is not forgiveness? What gets in the way of forgiveness? And how we may grow in forgiveness that are going to be the kind of pointers for our discussion. So just to put you in the picture, we've got forgiveness needs letting go. It needs acknowledging what's done wrong. And it needs that we're going to look at these questions. What is it? What is it not? And what gets in its way and how may we grow in it. If you ask yourself what is forgiveness, one thing it'll presuppose is that we believe in the good. We wouldn't have any need of forgiveness if we thought that the reality is that everyone is out for themselves, everything is mayfane, there is no such thing as one great big good, because there would be nothing to transgress then. So forgiveness If we even acknowledge its existence at all, it presupposes that we have a belief in the good. The dictionary gives us two definitions. It says, to cease to feel angry or resentful, to remit a punishment for an offense. These definitions highlight the unifying power of forgiveness. It is that which makes whole a situation where the good has been ruptured or transgressed but it makes demands on the one who forgives and on the one who is forgiven if the reality of the good is to be made real and restored. So admittance and remorse are necessary on one side and surrender of resentment and the hurt on the other. Jesus says in St. Luke's Gospel, If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him, and if he repent, forgive him. And if he trespass against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turns to thee saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. The teachings of Jesus ask that we transcend our human limitations and go the extra mile with everyone. The alternative to forgiveness is to hang on to a grievance. Both parties then are condemned to an endless cycle of guilt and vengeance and meanness of spirit." And as the little subtitle for this talk is, that's definitely not a recipe for peace. Forgiveness makes sense if personal satisfaction is not the highest good. If we believe in the unity of mankind, or as a philosopher called Marcus Aurelius says, if we remember the close bond between ourselves and the rest of mankind because we were all born for one another, then forgiveness makes sense. It can end the quarrel and it can restore the unity. And it's not just in the Christian tradition that you find forgiveness lauded as a quality to cultivate. The great teachers of humanity all seem to say the same thing about forgiveness. They all point to this restorative quality of it. They all point to its unifying force. Lao Tzu said, The good I meet with goodness. The bad I also meet with goodness. For virtue is goodness throughout. The Buddha has an even more graphic description of forgiveness. He says, Even if the highway robbers with a two-handed saw dismember you limb by limb, Kind and compassionate, I exhort you to abide loving of heart and not harbour any secret hate. Just as a sandalwood tree hewed by a woodcutter envelops the woodcutter in its fragrance, similarly, even when a person is persecuted, their compassion and their love must envelop the wrongdoer. That's a fairly high ideal. Would you agree? Maybe we sort of say to ourselves, no, that's not realistic. That, that's not going to happen. The point is, the more you look at this topic, the alternative is much worse. If we don't strive for something along the lines of what the Buddha says and what Lao Tzu says and what Christ in our own tradition says, we are condemning ourselves to a very dark existence. In Srimad Bhagavatam, He says, even though scolded by the wicked, or insulted, spat upon, or abominably treated by the ignorant, the man who desires his well-being should deliver himself by his own effort through patience and non-resistance. So, even if you were ultimately the most selfish person in the world, forgiveness is the key, because otherwise you're going to be left with the grievance, left with the hurt, and while We'll look later on at how that can sometimes appear attractive. In the end, it poisons us. So the wise are wise because they know what's best for themselves. Christianity makes it very clear. It has forgiveness at its very center. Jesus' life and death were examples of forgiveness. And time and time again in the Gospel, he tells humanity to turn the other cheek, to love our enemies and to go the extra mile. He further says that unless as humans we can forgive each other and return good for evil, we will know nothing of the divine. And knowing nothing of the divine must mean a life tethered to the humdrum, an endless cycle of tit for tat, and that's bleak. The message was unequivocal. Jesus would lay down his life and wipe the slate clean for humanity, if his words could be accepted, and if man could recognize and acknowledge the reality of the good. And time and time again, he linked man's capacity to forgive his fellow man with the entry of the divine inner lives. I know I don't want to insult you by saying, but if you know the Our Father, there's a passage in it that always puzzled me, because it says, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And I remember even as a child thinking, why would he need me to forgive for him to know what forgiveness is? You know, we sort of show God what forgiveness is. You know, forgive us our trespasses um, as we forgive others. So we had to do it first before we got access to God's forgiveness. But I think that's what having access to the divine is. But unless we know what forgiveness is among ourselves, there's no point coming to pray unless you've dropped your grudge against your brother or dropped your um, issue with whoever you have an issue with. If that's not dropped, you can know nothing of God or know nothing of the divine. So forgiveness is for all of us. It's not just for saints. It's not just something that's great in theory but doesn't really work in practice. It will work if we can put the spotlight on ourselves and see what gets in the way. Because when you see the real nature of what's getting in the way it's not all that useful. Forgiveness is in fact the essence of how we are to live and how we are to reconcile the battleground of good and evil. If forgiveness were to disappear how would any situation or any person or anything change? we would be condemned to live life in the past. Now, we do fortunately have one example, the only one that I could find on the world stage, of where forgiveness was employed as a source of bringing about change, and that's South Africa. Now, um, in the last talk, there was this wonderful man sitting in front of me, nodding away, and it turned out he had been on the Truth and Reconciliation Committee in South Africa, so I was glad that all my facts were straight because he had them firsthand. But while we may look at South Africa and see all the, the defects that are there at the moment and all the problems it faces, it has managed to go from one system to another without a bloodbath. And in Archbishop Tutu's book, he said that was done through this truth and, well, it was helped by this Truth and Reconciliation Committee, and it had at its very centre the need for forgiveness. Desmond Tutu describes how South Africa avoided the bloodbath that everyone feared in its transition from apartheid to democracy. The people and their elected representatives agreed to the setting up of this Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and it was a very brave and daring step. The victims of apartheid and violence would forego their right to bring legal action against their oppressors as long as the oppressor admitted their guilt in public. The accounts of these victims and perpetrators makes very harrowing reading and I would not recommend that book for your Christmas reading if you want a nice lazy Christmas but it's a book worth reading if you want to see the scale of what people can put up with and what they can rise to in terms of forgiving their fellow man. Both sides of the divide, the blacks and whites, were ready to play their part, and they were willing to return good for evil. There's an example of one white woman who was brought up to hate apartheid, but she found herself the victim of a bomb, and where she was severely injured in 1992. Her body now is so full of shrapnel that she can't get through security screens. When asked about amnesty for the perpetrator, she said, I would like to meet the man that threw the grenade in an attitude of forgiveness and hope that he could forgive me too for whatever reason. But I'd very much like to meet him. And another girl, a black girl, Babawelo Cickelo, whose father, along with others, tried to oppose the forces of apartheid, was harassed, tortured and finally killed, said to the commission, We do want to forgive, but we don't know who to forgive. This, she said, in spite of knowing all the details that was done to her father, and they were the stuff of nightmares. Later on, the police did, in fact, admit their guilt. And there was another man called Neville Clarence. He was blinded by an explosion. He attended the amnesty hearing when those who had masterminded this attack were applying for amnesty. The main applicant for amnesty was a man called Mr. Ishmael. Neville Clarence did not oppose the application. Instead, he went over to Mr. Ishmael, who had apologised for causing the civilian casualties. He shook hands with him and said that he forgave him, even if his action had cost him his sight. And he wanted both of them to join forces to work for the common good of all. He said later, that Neville Clarence said, that it was as if they didn't want to let go of each other as they shook hands. Now, when you hear these and you read them out, I sort of think they're a bit bland really, you know, I forgive you, you forgive me. But when you read what they went through and you read what they suffered and that they still could get up and say, OK, we, we won't take them to court, we won't fight, we won't kill each other, we will actually forgive, it's a remarkable thing to have happened. And the gentleman of in Better, Kenny, who was there, he said, it's kind of as if this capacity to forgive is very developed in South Africa. He said, I'm not too sure you could get it to happen in Ireland. Because he said, they didn't hold on. And he said, the, the most hard, I mean, they were worse, if you read the book, they're worse than anything you've ever read. And yet they got up and said these things in public. Bishop Tutu said that the price for anyone on the commission was quite high because he said not one of them got by in their lives having heard everything that was heard without suffering some catastrophe. He said actually listening to the accounts nearly finished off some of them. Be listening to it day after day and hearing these accounts and watching people break down and watching people forgive and seeing this emotional kind of cleansing happening, he said he could do it once but he couldn't do it a second time. So the fact that a country could take up a stance like that is remarkable. And I can't think of any other examples apart from Gandhi. And I'm sure there are others, but in our present time, this one looms large. And one thing it does show in South Africa is that these people seemed to understand the need to perceive all the events that had happened to them right throughout their past with an impersonal rather than a personal eye. For the sake of unity and peace, and a deeper insight into humanity, they were ready to forgo the debt and surrender the hate. Likewise, the oppressors, for years enjoying power and privilege, finally had to acknowledge the injustice of their position, admit their guilt, and thus make it possible for them to be forgiven. Now we can say, how can we do that? Can you do that as an individual? Well, self-examination can highlight the errors of mind and heart which cause us to inflict pain on others. Being able to admit to wrong is a big step. It requires humility and honesty. The further step of eliminating whatever vice that gets in the way, eliminating it, allows us to be open to the grace of forgiveness. And then forgiving others and returning good for evil is then possible. And it's the greatest challenge we probably ever have to face. It pushes us to our limits. Marcus Aurelius puts it another way. He says in his nine steps on how one should conduct oneself when offended, he says, think of the characters, of the character of the person who has offended you, and in particular, the pressure which their own ways of thinking exert upon them, and the consequent self-assurance with which they commit These acts of theirs. So, forgiveness is a purity of mind which allows you to think and behave on a universal scale. It allows you to do this because you can understand your fellow man. Forgiveness allows both parties to go free. The slate is clean, the good is restored, and the possibility for this sweetness and laughter, that Yeats talks about, to flow, is possible. Now, the next question is, what is not forgiveness? Well, one thing it's not is, it's not niceness, and it's not sentimentality. More importantly, you can't use it as a cloak for injustice. In the Bhagavad Gita, there is the story of Krishna and Arjuna, Krishna was not too sympathetic when Arjuna, who was a great warrior and told to go out and fight, refused to fight. And he refused to fight on the grounds that all the people he was going to be fighting were all his family or his extended family. But he was told, no, it's your duty to fight. That's what you have to do. That's what you are. You're a warrior. That's what's necessary now. And his refusal to fight was seen as cowardice. Krishna said, He was a card because his love made him forget his duty to his country. His motive was therefore not pure. So we may have as our lot to act as teachers or to punish or to judge or correct. If we avoid doing these things, we're not practicing forgiveness. We are simply just not doing our duty. Just as forgiveness requires us to relinquish the personal viewpoint, Justice may require us to act against the oppressor, but the only thing it doesn't require us to do is to hate him. So justice can operate and it may be necessary to act, and it may be necessary to be tough, and it may be necessary to punish, and it may be necessary to reprimand, but as long as there isn't a motive of getting back at the other person or hating the other person, that's valid. And there's actually a little story, you would like a little story at this point, a story about a snake. Whenever you see these books and you hear about stories of snakes, they're always very interesting because they're always people who were once something else. They were never always a snake. And this is a story of a man who ended up somehow in the form of a snake. But that's not the important bit. The important bit is this little bit. This man, in the form of a snake, stopped biting everyone. He thought he was going to be really good. He wanted to be a good snake. And he wanted to, I presume, kind of redeem all the sins that he had done wrong. So all the villagers found out that this is what was going to be the case and that this snake was an easy prey. And they used to come and collect fruit or wood or anything from the jungle and they would throw stones at him. And he never retaliated. It didn't disturb him. And there was no reaction so then they thought to get a bit more daring, so they started to take up sticks, and they started beating him, and they pulled his tail and they dragged him all over the place. All sorts of trouble befell this poor snake. But because he had promised not to bite, he was going to be a good snake, he kept quiet and endured all his sufferings. After a number of months, these holy men, they always appear in these stories, a the holy men came by, and they were returning through the same forest, and they saw the snake, and they saw his terrible state he was in bits. And they said to him, what have you been doing? And he said, well, I was trying to be good. I, I said to myself, I'm not going to bite. And the holy man said, yes, but no one told you you couldn't hiss. He had his little mechanism for warding off his foes um, and he didn't use it and that wasn't considered by the wise men as the most intelligent thing he could do. So the hissing can be necessary. It may be necessary to hiss, and it may be necessary to use sharp words. The key is, though, that when we tend to use the sharp words, the trick is to deliver them with no venom. All you needed was the hissing. You don't need the venom. It's also important that acceptance sometimes we can, a wrong is done, and we as the victim can accept it. We can deal with this somehow. We may have the strength or the character to let go of the hurt. It doesn't mean the person who committed the wrong is off the hook. They do need to say sorry. They do need to feel remorse. Otherwise, they don't get to experience the forgiveness. So you may be free of whatever they've done to you, but it is important for forgiveness, if it's to work on both sides, that there's repentance, on the side of the culprit. And time and time again when you look through the Bible and Jesus' words, always coupled with forgiveness is this need for repentance. Jesus was going to lay down his life, he was going to sacrifice everything, but it did require that man had faith and faith in his words and repented his wrongdoing. So forgiveness is not the same as acceptance. And now really to the nitty-gritty bit, what gets in the way of forgiveness? There's a kind of a list of things, and funny enough, as you read the list down, as you reflect on the list, you find they sort of build up one on the other. And they kind of culminate in perhaps the biggest obstacle of all for forgiveness. But the first one is present satisfaction. How often do you hit back for the sheer momentary pleasure of getting back at someone who's got at you? Is that your experience ever? (laughs) Never find that. (laughs) You know, somebody takes your parking place or shortchanges you or insults you, and then shortly later you see them getting their comeuppance. You couldn't deny that there's not a sort of present satisfaction in that. The only problem with that, it's a bit like what the bee can do. The bee can sting you if you get in his way, but he's dead shortly after that. So the present satisfaction, if that's going to be our yardstick, it's not wise. It only gives you a momentary pleasure. It doesn't give you a lasting pleasure. So this desire for our pound of flesh, like Shylock in The Merchant of Venice, and this desire to eliminate that hurt immediately, to get away from it, not to feel the victim of it, not to feel the force of of kind of frustration. You just want to see that go. And hitting back, it's like a kind of instant gratification. But it doesn't leave you whole. You're still left with it. You've still got your enemy and you're still left with the hurt when the satisfaction has worn off. We sort of say, well, it's only human. That's what a human being does. If you're going to go at me, it's only natural that you're going to hit back. And that's the case most of the time for most of us, is that the tendency is if someone has a go at you, you're going to have a go back. If that is practiced, what we end up with is a hard heart. Do you remember M. O'Casey's play, Juno and the Peacock? Have you ever seen that one? There's a part in it where Mrs. Boyle has just lost her son, and she thinks right throughout the play that she's going to be able to hold on to him, but he gets killed. And she comes in and she utters these lines and she says, Lord, take away their hearts of stone and give them hearts of flesh and blood. And in a country like Ireland, where we're renowned for our warm hearts and we're renowned for our capacity to be able to communicate with people, we seem to be also either gifted or cursed with a capacity to harden our hearts. When pain gets too much, we can sort of dig our toes in and that's the end of it. There is no giving up. We're just going to stick with what we know. We're going to stick with the pain. We're going to remember it. We're going to celebrate it. We're going to talk about it. And that means that the heart, which its job is to love, its job is to connect, its job is to communicate, that you just stifle it. You just sort of cut it off. You just say, that's it. Uh, you just leave it kind of frozen. And that. Hard-heartedness means you condemn yourself and you condemn the other to the past. Living in the past then becomes a kind of, a sort of a, a blueprint for how to live. Whenever you meet someone, you remember the past. Whenever there's an event, you remember past hurts. It's a kind of, you know, traditions should liberate us and make life easier, but where we dwell in the past We then just come up with a sort of automatic reaction. Every time you see somebody who has done you wrong, that's there. We don't see the person who's there. We don't see the one who's right there in front of you now. There's certainly no capacity for change. We don't acknowledge a capacity for change. And Tutu says in his book that unless we can acknowledge in the other this capacity for change, we can't have a community it's just one little quote here. It says, In the act of forgiveness, we are declaring our faith in the future of a relationship and in the capacity of the wrongdoer to make a new beginning on a course that will be different from the one that caused us the wrong. We are saying, here is a chance to make a new beginning. It is an act of faith that the wrongdoer can change. Well, the problem of hardening our heart is that it makes it impossible to make that act of faith. And again, if you kind of go for the quick fix, the present satisfaction, the hard heart gets established, living in the past gets established, and then maybe the biggest obstacle of all we believe we're right, the sense of righteousness. You now have a position. We're right they're wrong. And while we're right and they're wrong, you don't see them. All you see is the wrong. When you're right, you have an identity. You're Irish, you're a Jew, you're a Catholic, you're a Protestant, you have an identity, something to give you worth, something to give you validity, something to give you a sense that you belong. doesn't matter that two-thirds of the world don't belong with you. At least you belong somewhere with something. And sometimes we end up settling for that little location, that little place, and that impedes forgiveness. So giving this talk the third time round, this one becomes the interesting one, what gets in the way of forgiveness. Because what gets in the way of forgiveness is where we can do the work. Because we can see it. Because, like, as Yeats says, we can look at the actions. We can look. We've got the mechanism here. When you have a go at someone, you can see it. You can see what's going on in yourself. You can see your reactions. You can see what's going on in the mind. And that you can change. You can't change the circumstances around you, but you can change what's going on inside you. So, they're the obstacles of forgiveness that get in the way of forgiveness. The present situation, the hard-heartedness, the strong sense of righteousness, dwelling in the past, the strong sense of identity. It was very clear reading that book and also listening to the man who'd been in South Africa that a mother or a brother or if you believed you were a mother you couldn't forgive someone who's taken away your children. You can't do it as a mother. You have to even let that go and just as a human being to forgive. Sometimes we do not forgive because we believe that the culprit doesn't deserve it. This is an almighty arrogance because we've set ourselves up as judge. And there is a saying, there's generally much to be learned before judgment can be pronounced. It also assumes that the other person is fixed in a negative mode and has no capacity for change. And it also denies the common humanity which unites us. We all assume, as individuals, we're all capable of change, so the culprit must be two. Or, we could like the sense of condemnation. It makes us feel superior. This is the sense of righteousness. At least you feel it's something. It turns our ego into a one-eyed God, and we can only see one point of view. Or, we think it would be unjust to forgive. There's a story about a man called Simon Wiesenthal who was a Jew who made it his mission to round up any Nazis who survived and he was going to imprison them. And he was at the deathbed of one Nazi soldier who asked to be forgiven. The soldier had been part of a group who rounded up a number of Jews, locked them in a building, and then set the building alight. And this is the account of the... It's a short account of the Jew in this story. Simon Wiesenthal, and he has written a book called The Sunflower, and he tells the story of how he was unable to forgive the Nazi soldier. So said he had put these people into a room and then locked the door and then set it alight and they burned to death. And he asked on his deathbed if Simon Wiesenthal, who was a Jew, could forgive him. And Simon Wiesenthal said he couldn't. And he asks at the end of the story, what would you have been able to do? Would you have forgiven him? Tutu goes on to say that if you can't find forgiveness, the situation has to stay as it is. You have to stay with Jews hating Nazis. You have to stay with the factions. So while it's very understandable that it's hard to forgive, without it, we're condemned to what is the present situation, whether it be good or bad. Now, the next question is, how can we grow in forgiveness? First, by being convinced of its value. And that takes place when we begin to see what goes on in ourselves, the consequences of not forgiving. The second is cultivating compassion. Realizing that other people's actions are errors, are often errors produced by ignorance. By adopting a universal view, not a personal or an individual one. Knowing what it's like to be in the other person's shoes. Another thing that can help us grow is not to identify with whatever role we're asked to play. We might be asked to play the role of teacher or parent, If you believe that's what you are, sometimes that can get in the way of forgiveness. Living in the present can help us grow in forgiveness. Putting the other person first. Have you all done the philosophy course? Well, the the sort of cornerstone of it at the very beginning is doing the exercise. Have you come across that? Just coming into the present, have you practiced that in the group? Oh, you haven't done the course? Oh, have you not? All right. Well, it's a a very extremely simple. It's so simple, it's kind of obvious. It's it's simply about being in the present, and it's simply feeling your feet on the ground, connecting with your senses, and letting go whatever might be going on in the mind, so that if you're managing to listen to this lecture, you're just listening. You're not thinking. And that coming into the present gives you a chance to see who's in front of you. Gives you a chance to connect with who's in front of you. You can have all sorts of ideas as you walk into the room that this person is this way, or you're this way, or have all sorts of ideas about yourself. But if for just a short space you just let it go, just what a child would do, they just they don't have ideas, so they do live in the present. And so then it is possible. It makes it easier to forgive a wrong done or a harm felt. The other simple one is just putting the other person first. If you just had as a practice to put the other first, then forgiveness is meaningful. It's not something you kind of back off from because if it's going to put the other first, well then forgiveness is necessary. Practicing forgiveness requires that we exercise self-control and restrain the habitual response realising that it is in our own best interest to forgive. Forgiveness allows us to enjoy the fruits. It frees everyone from the past and enables them to enjoy the present and look forward to the future. It leaves no unresolved issues between ourselves and others and allows for the natural in-between, which is love. It gives peace of mind and heart. So, ladies and gentlemen, we started out with the question, what is forgiveness? It is a form of love, and it blesses him that gives and him that receives. What is it not? It's not something to be used to cover up fear of consequences or an unwillingness to tackle a problem. What gets in its way primarily is the kind of curse of duality, you and me, me and the other. Sort of the concept that there's two is perhaps the big block to forgiveness. When we have that, then there's a kind of one party is guilty and therefore I'm right and I can't do anything about them. They're not worthy of any more attention and they're just left in that position. How can we grow in this forgiveness? By acknowledging its worth, by practicing it, and by being kind to ourselves. And that is it. The next now is if you have any questions or would you like to have tea first, which would you like to do? Would you like to have tea first? Have a, break. have a little break? And come back and we we'll begin the real lecture. <laughs> Does that be alright? Thank you. If you'd like to put up your hand and then we can get the mic to you successfully before you start speaking.
1: Um, more an observation than a question, I get the impression that forgiveness isn't very popular or very current in, among the public or among the media and I'm just thinking of a number mm-hmm. of instances recently, say in Britain when Mary um, when Hindley died. Well, actually it was in Ireland, it was an Irish newspaper, I think it was the Irish version of uh, one of the British tabloids. It was very <laughs> unforgiving type of headline, I think it was something like, along the lines, that at last the devil is where she belongs in hell. Mm-hmm. And I think it was just politically, she couldn't mm-hmm. be, well this is what was said anyhow, she mm-hmm. just, just politically she couldn't be forgiven. And I think much the same with the two, well, if there were boys when they murdered Jamie Bulger. You know, they're more or less. I think their identities are completely changed, and you know, to be. I think they are released, or they're in the process of being released, but they have to have, you know, altered identities. And say here, you know, it's. I think Santa Clara's that Desio here would be released, released yeah. and that mm-hmm. has given rise to quite a, mm-hmm. you know, quite a reaction, adverse public reaction, mm-hmm. that people maybe are not ready for forgiveness, a lot of people
0: at least. Yes, it's a very important point. When you read about what Myra Hindley did, or you hear about what the two youngsters did to Jamie Bulger or Desi Hare and the finger episode, they were horrific. I mean, the, the deeds are horrific, and they are almost crimes against humanity in a way, in the sense of what kind of pain you can try and inflict on somebody else. And forgiveness for to be complete does require that in each of those cases the culprit acknowledges the wrong. Because in a way the forgiveness can't really happen until they see the error of what they've done. Now that's one side of it, is that there has to be as it says in the Bible over and over again, there has to be some kind of awareness of the damage done or the wrong done before the fullness of forgiveness can take place. But the other side of it, us reveling in feeling superior or feeling, you know, wanting to condemn them or kind of what you see sometimes on television is people hankering after some kind of pain to befall them isn't helping either. It doesn't make the situation any better. What you need is justice. If Desi O'Hare has... I mean, it was interesting to hear the policeman who had put, put him into prison, he said, he's done his time. It's time for him to come out. I thought that was that would be my guide. He knew all the details. He had put him there. And he obviously worked very, very hard to put him there. And if he'd decided, well, that this is a...
1: Mayor and dara interviewed as well. He, the, the man whose fingers were... Chopped off his son-in-law, and obviously he suffered terribly. And also, Austin Dara attributed the whole episode to the premature death of his wife. His wife had cancer, and he maintained that the... this is
0: uh, Desi O'Hare's wife.
1: No, Austin Dara's wife apparently had cancer, and Austin Dara, being a medical man, he thought that he would you know know about these things. He attributed his wife's death to To
0: what had happened to the son. All right.
1: He knew that it was on the cards that, as you hear, will be released. So his attitude, well, let it, it happen, let, let whatever will happen, will happen, you know. Yeah. Let justice take its course Yes, and that it's in the hands of other people. He wasn't saying, you know, lock them away or don't let them, don't release them. He's quite open to you know, to business. Mm. but couldn't be, I don't think that was the general reaction so there isn't in the system, there isn't maybe the provision, you know, if somebody commits an offence against an individual, the individual victim is almost sidelined, you know, and the yes. offence is against the public or against the state, and it doesn't seem to be the provision for contact, we say, between yes. them yes. And, and the victim. Maybe, in some mm-hmm. instances, the victim like it. It's not there. The, all the offence is against the public or against the state, and the individual victim is... Oh, incident.
0: Yeah, and that might be what makes that truth and reconciliation thing such a useful yes. blueprint if it could be used in other situations. You do get the sense, though, that this kind of outcry is kind of powered by these <coughs> obstacles to forgiveness, which are a sense of righteousness or a feeling that they deserve to be punished. It's not that punishment shouldn't take place, but... I think on the kind of individual level where you hanker after that as satisfaction, it's almost like vengeance. You just want vengeance. Is not the way to peace. What I found most interesting is, is in your own patch, in your own life, how you deal with what comes up in your own life, the personal situations. I mean, I don't know whether you've had the experience of there's a person in your family you haven't spoken to or a relative you haven't spoken to or... How you overcome those individual situations?
2: One thing that you said there is that
0: for forgiveness to take place the injury must be acknowledged, be say a perpetrator. And what I just wondered is that a control that the victim has for it to
2: be acknowledged? the forgiveness is in the control of the person that has to
0: acknowledge that they have done a wrong. And that kind of can be outside of your... Uh... Yes, in the book actually, I was just reading, it just before you came in, Bishop Tutu says that if you take the example of Jesus, he was able to forgive. He forgave. He says, forgive them because they do not know what they do. and. You, as the victim, don't have to carry the burden of the hurt. You cannot hold any grudge, you can let go of the pain, and you can be willing and ready to forgive. But for the other person's sake, unless they're willing to acknowledge what they have done and feel remorse, the forgiveness is useless to them. They have nothing to really receive from you. As you say, you don't have to be waiting for them to change for you to let go. No, I just thought that it would mean that it was outside of your control, outside of the person's control, because, again, it would be better if one would say, well, I've nothing to forgive, that it's, if you said you can put yourself into the shoes of the other, that might be, and see it from their perception, or yes. from their perspective, that yes. that would be in our own domain. In your own domain. Yeah. Now, what you're saying is very accurate. It's Forgiveness is a duty. If somebody does a wrong to you, and you've managed to let go any resentment, any desire to sort of hit back, you've done your part of the job. There is another party to it, is the one who's committed the wrongdoing. For them to experience forgiveness, you've experienced the forgiveness, you've let go. And the other point is, you're not dependent on them. But for them to experience forgiveness, for them to achieve the benefits of it, they must Admit the wrongdoing. And it's when both happen simultaneously, as in with what they tried to do in South Africa, that you have a chance for change. You can change, but the other party is going to stay as they are. I mean, if, for instance, the boys who killed Jamie Bulger, we can't absolve them from the wrong of what they've done. But once they've acknowledged that wrong themselves, they're entitled to forgiveness. And it's our duty to forgive them then. You kind of have a couple of scenarios. The one where someone asks for forgiveness, like the Nazi soldier asked Simon Wiesenthal. And if he's sorry, and Simon Wiesenthal withholds the forgiveness, he's the sufferer. If you're letting go the hurt and the other person still hasn't come to grips with it, they're the ones suffering. But for all to gain, there needs to be this letting go and this admittance of the wrong. As you point out, you're not controlled by the other person's reaction. I won't find the passage now, but he does make that point in the book. Actually, he gives an example. Does the victim depend on the culprit's contrition and confession as the precondition for being able to forgive? Which is what your question was. And he says, there is no question that, of course, such a confession is a very great help to the one who wants to forgive. But it's not absolutely indispensable. Jesus did not wait until those who were nailing him to the cross had asked for forgiveness He was ready, as they drove in the nails, to pray to his father to forgive them. And he even provided an excuse for what they were doing. If the victim could forgive only when the culprit confessed, then the victim would be locked into the culprit's whim, locked into victimhood, whatever his or her own attitude or intention. That would be palpably unjust. And then he uses this analogy. Imagine you're sitting in a dank, stuffy and dark room This is because the curtains are drawn and the windows have been shut. Outside, the light is shining and a fresh breeze is blowing. If you want the light to stream into that room and the fresh air to flow in, you'll have to open the window and draw the curtains apart. Then the light, which has always been available, will come in and the air will enter the room to freshen it up. So it is with forgiveness. The victim may be ready to forgive and make the gift of his or her forgiveness available, but it is up to the wrongdoer to appropriate the gift, to open the window and draw the curtains aside. He does this by acknowledging the wrong he has done, so letting the light and fresh air of forgiveness enter his being. It's a good summary, isn't it? it, not its there anything else you want to say?
3: I thought your lecture was a wee bit one-sided. It was a nice lecture, but maybe a bit too nice. For example, you gave a lecture on forgiveness, and you never mentioned the word revenge at all. My own understanding, really, really of all ethics, really, there are really just two philosophies you know, in all ethics, and one is the philosophy of forgiveness. The other philosophy there is the one of revenge. And I mean, that's why you have things like a Christian philosophy in order to counter the other philosophy of mm. revenge. You know, don't get mad, get even. You know, you're sort of saying, don't mm-hmm. get mad, forgive. And really... The, I find that there's something very idealistic in the whole forgiveness philosophy. It is an idealistic philosophy in that you just take a very basic thing, like let's say a man comes along and he slaps another man in the face. Now, there is a very instinctual wrong felt by the Mm -hmm. injured party there. Mm -hmm. And that wrong actually can be righted to a very good extent by that man actually striking the other man even more strongly, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, he returns a greater injury for the injury suffered. And actually, that can, in reality, bring about a catharsis and bring about a certain peace of mind. In other words, it can re- absolve some of the resentment. And that is a fact. That is a fact of human nature. And I think that is a fact that the idealism of the whole peace thing ignores. You were, In your lecture, you are giving the impression that if you suffer an injury and you don't forgive, well, then there has to be stalemate. But there actually, there is another way, and that is when you suffer an injury and you get revenge, and on a human level, you allow yourself to not to feel resentment. because it's been, Do you ever feel yourself or anybody in the audience feel how easy it is to forgive somebody who is dead? And there's a reason for that, just because you feel, well, they're not going to do it again. That's a very important thing as well, you know. I can forgive you, forgive you a lot if I know damn well you're not going to do it again. And if you're dead, you're not going to do it again. It's not that I killed you, but maybe you might have just died for some other reason, you know. Mm. Mm. So I'm just making the point that you can be as idealistic about this, and I'm not saying that's wrong, you mm. know. I'm saying that, you know, it's lovely to, to follow that divine point of view but there is a cruder human point of view that is very much operative and can actually work, and that's why it has survived. People know that if you get revenge, it actually can bring a peace of mind, and that's why that revenge survives. It's just an unfortunate Mm. reality, but it is a reality.
0: It's a fair, if the cruder scenario worked, i.e. if the person slaps you across the face and you go and slap him harder, if he learns from that, if he learns something real, if he learns that you don't do that sort of thing to other human beings, then it's worked. But if all he learns is the next time I hit you, I'll have a, a weapon, he hasn't learned anything. You've only just escalated You're taking the, the
3: altruistic point of view again. Don't worry about the other guy. We're talking about you. We're talking about your p- but, peace of mind. So yeah. you don't have to go away from the event hating the person or resenting the person because you got the better of them. Because like, you got, you got instant, it's, it's actual catharsis. Yeah, you know? that's the present satisfaction of yeah, yeah. it. But mm.
0: the problem is people then tend to, as we said in the lecture, mm. tend to hit at you because they think they're right. Plato makes the point that no one ever does an action unless they're absolutely, even though, however misguided they may be, at the moment they do the action, they believe it's right. So the person who's hitting you isn't hitting you because he just thinks, well, I'll hit him if I can get away with it. He's hitting you because, or he's lashing out at you because he thinks that's what he should do. So if you hit him back, while, yes, you do get the satisfaction, but I can't see how it changes anything. You may stop him, you may be more powerful, and you'll get the satisfaction. Yes, and I certainly have felt the satisfaction of putting the other person down. Yes, it does give you a present satisfaction, but it doesn't really change anything. That would be my argument that it's not idealistic to say use forgiveness, it's incredibly intelligent. Because the people in South Africa had adopted a mode of saying, these white people who, if you hear what some of the policemen did, you would say, there is no way I'm getting up in any truth and reconciliation to say, I forgive you. I don't think I would have been capable of what some of them did. But the fact is, by doing it, they forced the people, black or white wasn't all that important, but in many cases, it was forcing the white people to say, I have done wrong they weren't going to do that at all. They weren't going to bother saying that they agreed apartheid was a good thing. They said it was right. These people aren't really human. They're only half-savage anyway. So it doesn't matter what we do with them. If we give them the run of this country, we'll all be finished. So the truth and reconciliation forced them. They didn't want to admit what the wrong was, but it forced them to it. Now, to me that was a momentous change, which you wouldn't have got if... All the black tribes all got together and they laid into the whites, and the whites got help. You can see it
3: very clearly in that sort of situation where if there's to be any redemption at all, something yeah. like that does have to happen, yes. certainly on a national level, like, Yeah.
0: Know. In your own personal experience, do you think that it pays off to hit back? Ultimately. In relationships.
3: Well, but you don't really have to sell it to me. like you know, d- although my, <laughs> The only point I was pointing out really was there is a force there and that it, did, yes. it can confer a certain, a certain mental peace. I mean, it's yes. easy actually to sell forgiveness in because we all know that if you suffer an injury and then you feel resentment, there's a double injury there. Yeah. And that's where the revenge probably comes in. Yes. That can remove that as well. You know, It's just the point that maybe some other people like. I you
0: know. think what's essential in what you're saying is that. There's no way you can underestimate the kind of, or make little, or make light of what we do feel when somebody hurts us. It's usually pretty traumatic. Mm. And you don't get over it lightly. You don't let go of it lightly. I think you do need lots of practice. And I think you need to be convinced of the intelligence of the action. You need to see, in many of the scriptures it says, if you just had faith, every wrongdoing gets its comeuppance. The other way of looking at it is you're absolutely certain that the person doing an injury to you is somewhere sometime going to get paid back. Even if you don't manage to do it, the law will give it back to them. If we had faith in a law that was always going to redress the balance, then it would be easier. So Mm -hmm. forgiveness requires that you have faith in the good. In that sense, yes, it is idealistic. I mean, I know personally tit-for-tat is a much more realistic way of, is what I would tend to do in the normal course of events. If someone does a wrong to me for no reason that I can see, yeah, I, I'm inclined to sort of find an opportunity to quietly Doesn't get back to them. does it all
3: then come down to really um, what you regard yourself as? Do you not have to have some, some sort of divine perception of yourself as a sting from an animal or human perception? Isn't that, isn't that where it all the fulcrum of it?
0: I think that is the fulcrum of it. I think again, in any individual exchange with someone, it's what the effect of the hurt has on you. You feel frustrated, you feel weak, you feel undervalued, you feel feel the victim, to really feel, you know, somebody has a go at you. Now, if you believe that's what you are, and you believe that's what you are, I think you're bound to hit back. I don't think mm-hmm. really you have really much of an alternative. I think that's why we do hit back. That's why what you say is absolutely spot on. It's our view of ourselves. And that's where you could take idealism out of the equation and in place it with intelligence, because I think if you can really see what's going on, really see. Like one lady gave an example last week of being in school age 13, and she was a very good hockey player. and She was very small, very swift, and there was a big girl, very big fat girl, who, every time she saw her, got a gang around her and beat her up. Uh, thing used to hang her up and hang her. She hated her so much. This is just a week old, this example. And she said she carried this resentment against this girl for years until she went to um, a therapist or something. And she said the therapist suggested that she go into a room and that she talk to the girl in her mind and understand why the girl did. And she didn't at the time understand it. But as she began to explore this other self of the girl, she realized the girl was fat. She realized the girl was incredibly clumsy. She realized the girl had a terrible image about herself, could never function on her own, always needed a crowd around her, and realized that this poor unfortunate had a dreadful view of herself. She met a friend of the girl when she was in her 20s, and the girl was on drugs, really going down the swanny. Now, she said what that taught her was Forgiveness for her makes sense because she said, it was showing me how the other person was. The other person was doing what they were doing out of a very dark self-image. Now, I wouldn't ever suggest that the road of forgiveness is some nice, sentimental, easy thing that we're all going to find. The purpose of this lecture, on my part, would be to convince us of its value, that it's it's an incredibly useful virtue to cultivate, not in any sense, not even for a good reason, but for an intelligent reason, because it will force you to look at your picture of yourself. I've just had it today, somebody, I asked them to do something and they should have done it, it was their job to do it, and they said, no, 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 I'm too busy, and I had no time to kind of deal with it. And immediately you feel this horrific hurt that somebody has sort of ignored you. And then you realise this is what I think I am. I think I am ineffective. That's what's hurt. If you ask yourself in any situation, what is hurt? It's an idea about yourself. And that's why forgiveness is useful. It forces you, you put your finger right on it, it forces you to see what you think about yourself. It forces you to look and see, what do I think I am? Am I, what am I? Because it's identification with something Makes us break up the good.
3: Very good, thanks. Let's address the question. <laughs> okay.
2: You mentioned acceptance earlier on, but didn't go in very much depth.
0: Where would you place acceptance in relation to it? I think it's a bit like what the lady said there that, again, you can accept a situation as it is. Whatever, you can accept it. It's important to be able to accept it. It doesn't mean, though, that action doesn't need to take place. There is always the danger of acceptance becoming confused, being passive, being so passive that you do nothing about what needs to be done about. For instance, if somebody is... I remember somebody had an example of a man he knew was stealing. He knew he was taking wood from somewhere, and he was giving it to him. He was passing it on, and he said, I knew where it was coming from, and he said, what would I do? And he said, well, you just have to tell him, you know, it's stolen, number one. I think what's very difficult for us to do as human beings is to be able to sort of put the knife down the middle and say to the person, what you're doing is wrong, while at the same time fully accepting the person. That's the hard act, that requires some kind of development or some kind of real big view of the situation, that you're able to say, that's not appropriate and at the same time not resent the person. Acceptance is step one, but it's not the ultimate. It may only relieve the victim. It may not do the duty to... When I was doing the lecture, the point was made, forgiveness is a duty of a human being. That's why I think it says in the Our Father, you are to forgive each other, as you are to forgive your trespasses, and that you don't come to make an offering until you've forgiven it's not something we kind of lavish out when we're feeling good. It's something that's essential as a human being, to grow as a human being. Is that answering your question, or is there more about...
2: Yeah, I, I think acceptance as an Indian party is something that is vital and accepting how things are. Forgiveness can be one step removed once you've accepted if you're talking about a personal letting go of things, so yes. you're not injured as a person by holding on to feelings for revenge and the slacking back. And there's always an issue of justice, so justice ought to be done because justice in society is important, but acceptance I would place personally more important than forgiveness. Once I accept a situation and it's been dealt with, then whether I forgive or other people forgive, for me it's not the issue, it's whether I accept or
0: um, where does that leave the other person?
1: To sort themselves out. It's not
0: my problem. Well, yeah, well that's, that's very honest. It can be very helpful on an individual level. There's one little quote, if I can find it. You can make the vision a bit bigger. It's in this one, I think. What's a bit about? I'll
2: just say it's not totally selfish, because I think if people observe you as a model of accepting
0: something
2: that's actually about teaching. It is. So actually it
0: works both ways, the other person? It does, absolutely. This is the quote, he says, learn to forgive others. Forgiveness is a master key for the purification of one's mind. Forgiveness can only come in a person who renounces his claims and lives only to fulfill the claims of others. To ask for forgiveness and to forgive others from the core of our hearts is a great spiritual asset to purify the mind. I think forgiveness, in a way, has a lot to do with how we see other people. But for sure, you can't do the step of forgiveness until there's the step of acceptance. But, you know, when you said that's their problem, I saw that today too. I I mean, I thought, well, I'm not going to bother with, I'm going to let that go. What was there at the center was, well, tough luck for them. That puts off the possibility of unity, and I mean, why not go the whole way? <laughs> there is another step to it. Is there anything? No. no. Okay.
3: Anything else? You spoke at length there about the Truth and Forgiveness Commission in uh, South Africa. We have never reached that stage here in in the Republic of Ireland, no. or Northern Ireland. Why do you think that is so?
0: I think it's because we have within us a god and a demon in a way. I think we have a tremendous emotional power as a people, greater than perhaps you would see in other nations. I think you see it manifest in our capacity to kind of communicate with people, our capacity to enjoy ourselves, our capacity to sort of welcome people. It's a kind of natural thing we do even without thinking. There's a great sort of spirituality there. There's a great hunger for something beyond the material. But if we get caught in that emotional world in a negative way, like if there's pain, if we experience pain, the demonic side of it is we're very, very reluctant to let it go. And then we can't get the present satisfaction. We lurch back into the past. We rehearse the wrongs. And we find satisfaction in hating. Because that emotional power will be used one way or another. Either you unleash it, Again, I think it's a great thing, of, or it's an important thing of actually valuing the other as yourself, not as someone different, not as someone superior or inferior, but as yourself, as someone sharing your humanity just as yourself. I think this hard-heartedness, I think O'Casey was right. I think when you read that play, his plays... They're desperate in one way because they're incredibly tragic. You don't come out feeling full of the joys of spring. You know, you come out feeling, gee, where did you know? Will this ever end? And it's being perpetrated. It, you know, it goes on, goes on in the north. Individually, you listen to all these people, and they're magnificent. You'd love to have them to, into your house. You could sit and talk to them for hours. I mean, you could sit and talk to Ian Paisley forever. He's a charming man. You hear people talk about meeting him on an individual level. He's great. You put him in front of a microphone talking about North or South, or anybody, and you get this kind of, um, what would you say, it's almost like a play, but he believes it, and it's, it's like a kind of force that takes you over, and I think it's the force of the past. I think we've we found the present so difficult that we've learned to live in the past. We indulge in it, and I think that means that the emotional energy is kind of dripping away in a kind of sentimentality in one way and in a viciousness and I think that's why we find it so difficult to let go. All these comedies that you hear about Ireland, they're all about um, how people hold on to grudges and I remember what your father did and sure, why would he be doing anything? Sure, I knew him when he was only a, you know, a kind of begrudgery. You don't want to see anyone getting up the pole because that might make you feel you should get up at two and you don't really want to and it's, it's that element in our nature which we need to combat. We need to consciously work against. Don't believe it's what we really are, but I think like every people, we blessed and cursed at the same time.
3: Well, obviously, the people of South Africa made that and were able to move the, forward.
0: It was lucky just to have somebody there. Actually, he said what struck him was their capacity to let go. Seemed to him, I mean, he was there as an observer. He was a, in the guards, I think, and he was sent to monitor something. And he said, conversely, he was a, a guard in Letterkenny. But he said he, he worked with Protestants and Catholics, and he said there was no problem, no problem, until the 12th of July loomed. Mm-hmm. And then he said it was as if he was a different man. He said it just, you know, it's a sort of cathartic change, mm-hmm. and it, it's like the ghost possesses you. And we're into that, kind of we're kind of people who like the imagination and the mystical. So... Mm-hmm. I think we let ourselves be subjected to it. I mean, practical hard-headedness would say, look, just get on with it. Like the little fellow who said to me today, you know, when someone knocks you down and you hurt your knee, he says, "I I think it's just a matter of getting up and cleaning up yourself and then get on with it. That's a very pragmatic thing. Whereas if you're going to say, that little courier, I'm going to get him, you know. And I think if you're charged with a lot of emotional power, the tendency is you could go down that route. And I think that's... Where we
3: But maybe the state itself here certainly has not given us a great example. The tribunals, for example, are no great examples of forgiveness, certainly, by the state. I think when we look at the, the Lindsay tribunal, I think they were very begrudging in admitting their faults and their wrongs.
0: Yeah, they didn't until someone made them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't really know what to say about that. I, I just find every time I'm listening to a tribunal, you know, I listen to Vincent Brown. Yeah. You hear these exchanges between the person who's in the dock and the... I think we're now regarding it as entertainment. I think we're seeing it on a different... In a way, part of the hard-heartedness can come when you stop realising that it's not entertainment. It is actually issues that you need to take seriously. And I think we joke about things so much that we can joke about anything. And we have a capacity to do that, but again, the capacity to do that has its downside in that you actually think it's just a joke that people are doing what they're doing. And it's not really. I mean, a lot of your money is going down the drain. I remember, you know, when um, Osama bin Laden was the Twin Towers affair? Well, within 24 hours, there was a joke here. I mean, you wouldn't dare say it in America. But here, you know, there was text messaging going on with... Have no place to say, nobody likes me anymore. Any chance of a, of a a place to live? You know, yours or Sam. I mean, that only in Ireland would people do that. They will take the most extreme situation and laugh at it. Now, that's a great thing, you know. It has a great side to it, but I think there's always the other side that you need to consciously protect yourself. You can't indulge in it. You can, you know, it can use it for its good value, but you can't. Be sloppy about it. And I think one trait we have is we sometimes aren't serious enough about the serious things. Anything else?
2: There's just one point, and it was really clarification I was looking for. Yeah. And towards the end, you talked about having a sense of self being a, a kind of a barrier to forgiveness. Or, or is it too much, you know, maybe identifying yourself as a mother or, yes. or as whatever? I mean, is that not integral to us all that, you know? Yes you know, your self-image is, I mean, it's a life without self-image, you know what I
0: mean? (laughs) Maybe I'm on the same track as earlier, that the notion of dropping that about yourself is is overly idealistic. I think, in one way, self-image is everything, but it's just very important what that image is. If it's something exclusive and individual, then it's, prone to error and it is it turns into the ego if you know if your self image is one where you're seeing that yourself is mirrored out there in front of you and everyone else we all can feel we can all think we all have bodies we're so much the same that if you make your self image an exclusive thing then you'll make mistakes because you can be baffled sometimes when you meet someone that you feel has done you wrong and you hear their side of the story. They've just seen something completely different. As he said in the quote, their understanding of what they're doing was so completely different to how you interpreted it. That's dangerous, where we can so misread each other that we can't connect with them. So I think it's very important that our self-image is a huge one. That you see within yourself the potential for all that you know about, that you're capable of the great, you know, unselfish act, but you're also capable of real malice. If you can see that, funnily enough, being able to see the whole picture about yourself, that you're capable of the good and the bad that makes connecting with everybody else... I mean, I think that's what makes Shakespeare such an incredible dramatist. In the worst kind of villains... He makes you sympathetic towards them because somehow he makes you see that you're in the villain as much as you're in the the hero or the heroine. And I think the self-image has to be, if it's dependent on nation or dependent on your gender or dependent on the size of your bank balance or how many children you've got or whether you're married or whether you're single, if it's going to be dependent on those things, it's fallible. But if you put limits on it, it's going to crash on you one day and you have to exclude those who don't fit into the category. I always find this when I see a woman came up to me just as I was going out the door and she said, "Uh, could you give us something for the baby? And I said, I just wanted to say no. I hated her. I really wanted to run a million miles. And what I wanted to run a million miles from was the fact that she let herself get into that condition. That's how I saw her. I just said, I'd never let that happen to me. I would always find a way that I'd never have to beg. Now, I was absolutely pained out of existence. while I, I felt a heel. I felt wrong. I felt I couldn't do anything right with her. Because you're not seeing her as she is. You don't really see her for what she is. You don't really know what's there. You're seeing an image you hate in yourself. You're seeing something in yourself you don't like. I just hate the thoughts of ever, you know losing control of whatever you're going to do. And, and that's what I saw her doing, but that's not how she may have seen it. And sometimes, you know, I've heard people who kind of engage with these people, and they say, you don't give them money, but if you talk to someone, if you actually just acknowledge that that human being is the same as yourself, they want the money. But that's a side issue. As long as you don't not acknowledge the humanity. And I think that's where what she said about how we see ourselves is at the kernel of It's at the centre of it. Anything else? It's time to call it a a night. Well, thank you very much. As always, the questions are the meat and drink of these talks. I hope what you've heard is what we've said and what we've heard is useful and worthy of practice. That'll be the most important bit. So... Have a very good Christmas and thank you very much.